Welcome to Song and Plants. My name is Carmen Porter. In this episode, I was joined by the extreme onion man himself, Stephen Bartstow. His travels, research, and Norwegian gardening experiences have amassed a wealth of knowledge regarding edible perennial plants of the world. This conversation centers around the wonderful and diverse genus of alliums. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to Song and Plants. Would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, my name is uh, Stephen Barstow, and uh, I'm calling in from a little place called Malvik, which is at uh, 63.4 degrees north in Norway, um, just outside of the third largest city in Norway called uh, Trondheim. I grew up in, in the UK, in southern England, near to Winchester, Southampton area. I studied all over the UK, Exeter, Norwich, and I ended up in, in Edinburgh. And while I was in Edinburgh, I became interested in the kind of uh, alternative movement. I started uh, getting an interest in, um, in nature. I wanted to know the names of things, plants and birds and this kind of thing. And uh, I remember a, a train journey coming back after the Christmas uh, holidays visiting my parents. I met another guy on a train going up from Manchester to Edinburgh where I was studying. And uh, the guy was called Dave Dufer. And uh, on that, that train journey changed my life, basically, because he introduced me to organic gardening. And uh, in particular, uh, the largest organic association in the UK, which was called the Henry Doubleday Research Association. When I got back home in Edinburgh, he, um, he invited me to see his small plot in the city where he was growing vegetables in an intensive raised bed gardening method. I joined the association and uh, asked my landlady whether I could have a little plot in the back garden to experiment with growing vegetables. I've never had any formal education within biology, botany, that kind of thing. Um, I studied basically to become an oceanographer. Uh, my speciality was ocean waves. And when I was finished uh, studying in, in Edinburgh in 1981, I was looking for jobs. It was difficult to get jobs in the UK at that time. My professor was often in Norway to recruit new students and he suggested I looked at Norway and I thought well that would be fun. I was interested in nature and Norway was a place that I imagined being heavily forested, lots of nature and uh, within a couple of months I was offered a job in, in Trondheim. I ended up with that job more or less all my working life until I took early retirement in 2017 to concentrate on what had become my first love, edible plants. Along the way, um, when I moved to Norway in 1981, was a big shock because while I was in Edinburgh, I um, became a vegetarian. And moving to Norway to a country where I kind of joke that it seemed that vegetables were illegal, in addition to the alcohol, which was heavily controlled at that time and still is, there were very few vegetables available in the supermarket. So in order to survive as a vegetarian, we really had to start growing our own food in a big way. But I also had this interest for nature. I wanted to, I wanted to live in the forest in some way. So I, I, we ended up buying a buying a house which was heavily heavily forested. So a very shady garden, not a not a place you would consider or think of 
to grow vegetables. We, you think of growing vegetables, you think of a, a sunny location being the ideal. But this garden was very shaded, had a quite a big diversity of trees and, and bushes already for being this far north. There was wild hazel, for example, which is a good indicator of not only providing food to me, but also to various species of birds like um, nutcrackers and woodpeckers, squirrels, that, that kind of thing. We just uh, started. There were a couple of relatively open places in the garden. We started making raised beds and started growing vegetables in an intensive way. But about the same time, I came in touch with a national organization called the, um, literally translated, the Useful Plant Society, a society that was devoted, a national society which was devoted to foraging for food. That was a bit of a lucky break because I soon learned that there was an abundance of wild edibles in, in, in the area where I lived, not only um, berries and uh, fungi in the autumn, but also wild edible vegetables that you could collect from nature. Uh, I travelled around the world with my job in the late 80s, early 90s. We had a big project which I was involved in in the South Pacific, which uh, involved visiting places like Fiji, Rarotonga in the Cook Islands and giving courses on, uh, on ocean wave energy to the local energy association. I usually took a bit of holiday along the way and uh, stopped off in places like New Zealand, Australia, west coast of the US, etc. to break these uh, long journeys and started buying books on uh, foraging in other parts of the world, which had become my interest. I remember in particular buying a book called Edible Plants of the World by Stuart Avant, an American professor who put together between about 1850 and his death in the early 1900s, uh, information about of about 3,000 of the world's edible plants. I started to read the book and discovered that uh, some of the plants which were described, there were no pictures, there was just a lot of information about how these plants were used around the world. And there was often a, a story associated with these plants as well. There's one, it was a plant I was already growing in my garden. It's the nodding onion, Allium cernium, which is the most widespread Allium species in North America. And in the book, it described how this had not only been a, a really important uh, food plant for the, for the Native Americans throughout the continent, but also had been a very important food plant for the colonists. And in particular, I remember the story of uh, a French, I think he was a missionary, Marquis, and his uh, following uh, on a journey to close to the present site of uh, Chicago, where it was described uh, this plant had really saved them from, uh, from dying of starvation. And it was these kind of stories which really started uh, fascinating me and the fact that I was already, already growing that plant and many other plants described in the book, which uh, up until then for me had been ornamental plants, perennial in particular ornamental plants that started me on the journey to start uh, basically collecting these plants and trying them out in my climate. I joke that I have a, a disease called collectomania. My dad, who's 97, he collects stamps. I had to find something to collect and it ended up being edible plants, um, spurred on by books like uh, Edible Plants of the World and, and later Cornucopia II by Stephen, Stephen Facciola, which is probably my Bible on uh, edible plants of the world. And uh, so I just started 
planting and uh, I would often learn about where the plants would grow in nature and try and plant them in a similar location in my garden. And it uh, turned out over the years, I, I trialled something like uh, 8,000 different uh, plants on this uh, this plot, which is it's about 40 metres by 50 metres, so it's not a, not a huge area. Generally, I would just plant one or two of each plant and see how they got on. So over the years, I tried about 8,000. At one time, I had over 2,000 plants growing in the garden. Many I wouldn't survive for various reasons. I had no information about how things would, would grow in my climate. So it was just trial and error. And it turned out that in this uh, shady garden, it was the perennials that, uh, that grew best. I collected the stories behind these these plants and I started writing about, so I discovered some plants like, uh, for example, uh, Hablitsia tamnoides, the Caucasian spinach which had been kept a closely guarded secret in uh, Scandinavia up to that time. And I wrote about it in Permaculture magazine in the UK. And that started a series of articles I wrote for them. There was an article also about hosta, the oriental spinach, they called it. Also, we were part of uh, a national organic gardening network. And uh, one year we had an open day and as a kind of a gimmick we decided to to try and attract the press to covering the event by announcing that we would make a world record salad attempt and make a salad with as many different plants as possible we ended up with 537 all collected in the garden and it's i believe still the uh, world record <laughs> so well, I became known as the extreme salad man after that that moment. Uh, some people also uh, call me the extreme allium man or onion man, which uh, we'll, we'll come into in a minute. And it also led to me writing my book, Around the World in 80 Plants, which basically summarizes my 80 favorite perennial vegetables that I grow in my climate. Perennials were much more climate friendly. They use much less energy. You didn't need to uh, irrigate. You planted them once and they would grow for many years. And all these aspects, and there's 20, 30 different reasons why perennials are good. It became my thing, I suppose. And after the book, I started traveling around the world. Also from 2017, I had retired, taken early retirement from my job as an oceanographer and had uh, been offered to be a visiting onion scientist at the Botanical Gardens here in Trondheim. And uh, the reason behind that was that uh, for many years I had been working on collecting old Norwegian perennial vegetables in a project for the Norwegian Genetic Resource Centre. And uh, we just got money in 2017 to create an onion garden at the Botanics. So I now have an office there, and over the last uh, few years, I've been developing this garden. It both houses the collection of old Norwegian onions, onions like walking onion you'll be fam familiar with, uh, the Welsh onion. Then we have plants like the Victory onion, Allium victorialis. We have Allium scorodoprasum, rocambole, or sandleek. They're various wild weedy onions like Allium oleracium and Vineali, yeah, and a few others. We've planted now about 400 different 
alliums in this garden from all over the world, in addition to the Norwegian heritage onions. Around about 2010, I also became leader of uh, the Norwegian Seed Saver organization, uh, which is called Kvon today. Kvon means Angelica in Norwegian. We basically work to conserve old varieties, but also to increase the diversity of food plants in particular being grown by Norwegians and to give us a more robust uh, agricultural system. Our organisation has developed a couple of gardens at this community garden, which is called Varisvenne. One of them is what I call the World Garden, which is basically a 12 metre diameter circle where I've basically planted my book, plus a few other plants, where you can imagine the, the centre of the circle is the North Pole. And then I've planted geographically around that. So one part is North America, one part is the Far East, one is Europe, etc. And I've tried as far as possible to plant mainly perennial vegetables around this big circle, which has uh, been a lot, of, a lot of fun and really compresses what I've done in my own garden into a, a much smaller space. In addition to that, we have what's called a, we call it a vegetable sanctuary. So it's a sanctuary for old vegetables. Bit of a long introduction. Sorry about that. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you. What would you say kindled your passion or what do you absolutely love about alliums? Oh, you want, have you got two hours? <laughs> <laughs> I think what it is, is that, well, first of all, it's the huge diversity of alliums that, that you find. In the, all, all the seeds look more or less the same. And when they sprout, they develop into this huge diversity of uh, different forms and shapes, flower colors and uh, height. And there are dwarf varieties, mini, mini alliums. And there are, are giants like the um, so-called ornamental onions that uh, we can buy in the garden centers in the, in the autumn. Well, there are about 930 allium species in the world. And it turns out that I can probably grow about a quarter of them up here. I had been trialing alliums for many years, so I already knew quite a lot about which species would survive in this new garden that we've developed at the Botanical Gardens in Trondheim. We actually call the garden the Allium Garden Chicago because it said that the name Chicago in one of the local Native American languages meant stinky old place, literally, meaning a place where onions were growing in the wild. So we have Chicago also in, uh, in Trondheim now. And uh, in addition to that, the fact that uh, there are onions available more or less the whole year, your Native American nodding onion, you can even harvest in the winter, which is one of the reasons that uh, Marcus and his party were able to survive um, using this onion because it was also available in the winter. Um, extremely hardy. Not only that, you have some onions which uh, will flower in the very early spring. Onions like uh, ramsons, which I remember growing in your garden, Allium ursinum. Yep. Other onions which will flower in the summer. Some are autumn flowers. And there's a huge range of different uh, colours. There are forms like the, again, the nodding onion has many different forms available. It's often grown as an ornamental. I should say that I had to make up a, a word to describe plants which uh, 
both were edible and ornamental. It's Edimentals, and that's uh, also my blog, edimentals.com. Mm-hmm. There are many onions which uh, are used also for purely as ornament. Um, in fact, uh, there was a study done a couple of years ago in, in Germany where they, they were able to document over 230 different alliums which were cultivated as ornamentals around the world. So the huge potential uh, for alliums, both as ornamentals and doubling as edibles as well. Another thing is that uh, alliums are really popular for the pollinators like bumblebees and various hoverflies, for example, and, and, and things like that. So when I'm working in the allium garden in the summer, I'm surrounded by bees buzzing and it's really fantastic to follow this. And uh, of course, I like to document the different species, document which species of pollinating insect uses different alliums. How interesting. For me, plants which are both edible, they look good, so they're ornamental as well, and are also good for the pollinating insects. That's the perfect plant for me. They're plants which I call not edimental, but edi entomental. Ento from entomology. So, <laughs> Eddie, ed, you got it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I haven't seen it uh, in common use yet, but uh, <laughs> it'll be fun to see. But just generally, that's that's one of the things I'm working on at the moment is trying to document plants which uh, fulfil all those three criteria in order that uh, other people who are interested in, in both helping nature and feeding themselves and enjoying the plants at the same time can get some uh, good ideas. And with that, within the alliums, there are many like that. With that criteria, do you have any species that are particularly outstanding that, like, is there one that is particularly flavorful, one that is particularly beautiful, and one that is particularly good for the insects? Or is there one that's good for all of them? (laughs) Any favorites? Well, I have one in particular, which is uh, one that I've discovered relatively recently. And it's one that's not in my book. I have about 30, 40 different alliums which are described in my book. But this one is a hybrid. Um, it's a hybrid between a wild species called Allium scamense, which comes from, I think, Uzbekistan or one of those countries, Kazakhstan, that, that kind of area in Western Asia. It's a very large onion, which is actually quite closely related to the common bulb onion and has been suggested as possibly one of the wild ancestors for that. But it's a much bigger plant. It can reach maybe one to two meters in the summer. Wow. Has these swollen up leaves, a bit like uh, bunching onion. It's within the same group of alliums as uh, both bunching onion and also the, yeah, the bulb onion. It's a hybrid. Uh, it's got hybrid vigor. Uh, in other words, it grows much more quickly, much more efficient plant, very large, and you can harvest everything up to flowering. You could use it, for example, to make an onion soup. I did that one year and it was delicious, just the leaves. And then the flowers appear and they're kind of like uh, larger white uh, spherical flowers similar to the to the bunching onion again the welsh onion and uh, they are literally covered with 
pollinating insects when it's in flower, which is over quite an extended period from yeah mid-June, I think, until the end of July, that kind of period. It also looks good, so it fulfills all three categories. So that one I would uh, profile. I would also include your own nodding onion, which also grows very quickly. I can see it in the future. And in fact, we try to get project money to commercialize it in Norway because I could see it being sold as a perennial commercial supermarket onion in the future. It looks good, it tastes good, and uh, it grows quickly and is totally hardy. On, on that one, do you consume the whole plant or is it just specific? Yes, you plants? can uh, consume the whole plant. The bulb isn't very big, but uh, you, you can eat that as well as the greens and more or less, and you can more or less eat it at uh, any time of the year as well. The flowers are fantastic. So you'll see the flowers in many of my multi-species uh, salads. And there are many different forms. I've got dwarf, a dwarf white flowered form in the, the Chicago garden. We have really tall varieties with uh, pink purple flowers, which are really beautiful. They're just prolific and uh, the insects love them. What's more, and, and, and they, they really look good as well. They're often grown as ornamentals on their own. In fact, when I discovered that it was uh, an important edible in North America, I was already growing it. One of the people at the local gardening club had given me a, given me a plant some years before that. I'm a little curious when you say that it's a hybrid. I was just wondering, because there seem to be quite a lot of crosses within mm. alliums. Why are there so many interspecies crosses? This particular one that I was mentioning, uh, I actually call it Wheats's onion. Wheats is spelled W-I-E-T-S-E. Wheats Melema is a well-known onion gardener in the Netherlands. He grows uh, commercially um, mainly ornamental onions, but he's also got a fascination for, for alliums uh, in general. And he made this cross himself, and he noticed one of the the seedlings that grew up grew much more vigorously than, than the other ones. So in many cases, hybrids have been deliberately made, partly because of the ornamental nature of, of these plants, but also the food value. Like, for example, the uh, walking onion, you know this one? Yeah. Um, Allium proliferum is a hybrid between um, the bunching onion, Allium fistulosum and uh, the common bulb onion, Allium kepa, very hardy. And there are different forms. So these crosses have been made in the past in many uh, in different locations around the world. But one of them, the one that, that you call Catuisa onion, is the one which forms different stories of onions during the summer. So you get these uh, top set onions forming instead of uh, seed. And the top set onions themselves will then uh, sprout and form a new set of top sets. And this, we know, was uh, an onion that was deliberately crossed by an Englishman who was interested in crossing different species of plants. And because of its peculiarity, this uh, top setting, this strange top setting quality, it was passed from the research grounds to, to local gardens and eventually traveled around the world. In fact, we know that one of those plants 
arrived in Norway in the late 1890s from a family who had uh, been in New York State in the 1890s. We don't know for sure they brought it back with them, but it, it's very likely it was only about 20 years after the cross had been made. And that is also our oldest heirloom walking onion um, here in Norway. And it's easy to propagate by just sprouting the top sets. Yeah, you can just uh, press the top sets into the ground and they generally uh, produce roots. That's how it happens uh, naturally in a garden. That, and the reason that they're called walking onions is that they fall over in the autumn and plant themselves. Then you get a plant in a different place the next year and, and it will gradually walk around the garden, if you like. When you're saving your own seeds from alliums in general, do you have to be careful about cross-pollination by insects? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, something we're very aware of in the allium collection that we have, because we have all these alliums growing very closely to each other. And it's not only within the same species, because it's known that, for example, uh, the nodding onion will hybridize with what you call prairie onion, allium stellatum. It will also hybridize with allium nutans from Siberia. So if you have a lot of onions growing closely together, you can get all sorts of uh, crosses arising, which can be interesting in itself. But if you're trying to conserve the varieties that you have, which we're trying to do in, in the allium garden, we don't want these crosses to happen. So a lot of the work um, I have to do in the summer is deadheading to stop the seeds dropping. Other people might be interested in, uh, in the more breeding aspect, but... Uh, in the garden itself, um, it, it's one of the biggest problems, keeping the plants as they are and conserving them in that way. So if you want to keep the seeds true, you want to save seeds to hmm. give away, how would you do that? Well, you'd have to isolate the plant, but the best thing is uh, vegetative propagation. Um, if you've got a particularly nice form, like the dwarf uh, white-flowered Allium cernium, nodding onion, then we would generally, and, and these onions from the garden are offered to members of the Norwegian Seed Saver Network. We would then propagate it in the autumn and uh, send it to the members as a plant, as a bulb, rather than as seed. Okay. Both approaches are interesting in many ways, but if we just allowed seed to, <laughs> to drop everywhere, we would have a mess eventually. Oh, Some nice forms might turn up, but... Uh, it would be interesting to do, but uh, maybe that's a, a separate project. Are there any alliums that you would like to have in your collection, but you haven't sourced or found yet? Oi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's think. Yeah, There are certainly uh, different species. And as far as allium, the wild species are concerned, this is another interest is that the ethnobotany behind them is, uh, is fascinating, more or less all alliums of a certain size. The dwarf ones weren't particularly interesting to people because of a little food value, but uh, the larger ones at least have more or less all been used for food in the past. And unraveling that uh, ethnobotany is uh, really interesting as well. I think forms of alliums that I would, uh, I would be interested in finding, um, I can't really think of I've got most of them now, you know, <laughs> that will grow in my climate. Uh, there's certainly varieties that I would like to have. There are others which I've tried many times to, to grow and not succeeded because of hardiness issues. Yeah, let me think. 
there are there there are too many really to to even <laughs> think of one if you see what i mean yeah when you mentioned the ethnobotany or the mm. history of cultivation of alliums mm. Are there species that are native to every continent? Well, alliums are mainly a northern hemisphere thing. There are a few in South America and certainly in the mountains in Central America. And there's one or two in uh, South Africa. Uh, North Africa, there are a few. In South Africa, you have a very closely related genus Tulbagia, the society garlics, which are not very hardy. But they're mainly a northern hemisphere thing. Here in Norway, we have, we have about five or six species, but none growing away from the coasts. None of the alliums seem to have managed to colonize our, our mountains, at least not yet. But there are certainly ones that w- would grow very well in our mountains, like, again, the nodding onion from North America. Very hardy, we can grow more or less anywhere here in Norway. How are some of your favorite ways to consume alliums? Well, I'm, for me, it's uh, I, I, I very rarely have a meal more, with less than 20 different vegetables mm-hmm. because I have this huge diversity around me. Rather than using one particular allium, I'll eat what's in season. I'll go out into the garden. I often don't know what I'm going to be harvesting. Like yesterday, I harvested uh, nodding onion, some um, allium carinatum, keeled garlic. I still cultivate garlic, which we have in store. At the moment, there are probably about 10, 15 hardy alliums which uh, have sprouted, and a few of them stay green all winter. But um, I mentioned onion soup with this uh, hybrid. I tend to have some basic recipes like um, uh, stir-fry, kind of Indian curry style, Mediterranean pasta with uh, a green sauce, always with a selection of vegetables which are available at at that time. I can't really use recipes because there aren't any recipe books which have the plants that I have in my garden. So I've had to improvise and use some basic recipes and just adapt them. Something that I do appreciate about your book as well is that you give suggestions of how to consume some of these plants Mm. that might not be familiar to most people. Mm. Yeah, I try to include... um, recipes in, inspired by how people would would use the plants around the world so the kind of uh, local recipes to give some kind of inspiration it's not a cookbook obviously there's not space for that but uh, it does give uh, some basic ideas about not only how to, how to grow the plant but also how to use it in the kitchen and of course there's the story behind the plant like i mean there are simple things like uh, i could tell you about the norwegian roof onions which is uh, quite interesting. This is again the, it's a type of um, bunching onion, Allium fistulosum or Welsh onion, which is a species which originates in the Far East, in, uh, in particular in Siberia. Very hardy and uh, it came to Europe probably in the, in the Middle Ages. It was discovered uh, 20, 30 years ago that uh, there were some old Norwegian wooden houses with turfed roofs in a mountain area near here where they had planted this onion on on the roofs. And it certainly goes back uh, at least 150 years and probably several hundred years. Um, We don't have any documentation before 1850 when it was actually pretty widespread that uh, people planted onions on the roof. So this was the original uh, 
uh, rooftop gardening, if you like. And there were two reasons for having these uh, onions on these turf roofs. The first was that uh, the onions are succulent. They're extremely hardy and they stay green even in, in really dry summers. And it can be really dry on these roofs. And that was uh, protecting the roofs uh, from fire. So the plants retained moisture so that it was less easy for sparks from the wood fire setting the, the roof ablaze. But it was also a place where they could harvest. So in the springtime, they would typically harvest the young shoots of this onion, and then they would uh, traditionally use it in scrambled egg, for example. So these onions are morphologically, or they, they look different in that they're smaller and they divide. They've kind of adapted to these roofs over such a long time that uh, some botanists even believe that uh, this roof onion should be categorized as a separate species because it's been growing in this very special environment over such a long time. And it's self-seeding all the time, so it's selecting itself to its environment. But if you take the plant off the roof, you'll find that it's, uh, it certainly is different to any other Allium fistulosum. Like in the Far East, they've uh, selected in a totally different direction. They've selected Allium fistulosum, the bunching onion, as a leek, for example, or if there are many different forms there. 200 different varieties of uh, bunching onions in Japan, for example. Some are very tall, some divide very quickly, some divide slowly, some are very have very chunky leaves. Uh, so they've, they've done a lot of selection work. And uh, it turns out that many of the J Japanese varieties, even though it's a species which comes from Siberia, uh, are not at all hardy. So they've taken the hardiness out of, out of these onions, unfortunately. Probably not deliberately, just due to the, the difference in yeah, climate. Yeah, just because they weren't selecting for that particular trait. Um, hmm. hmm. Do all of the onions that you have tasted have that very pungent flavor? Well, that's, that's the other thing that uh, onions... Actually, there's a book written on onion chemistry, mm -hmm. uh, a guy called Eric Block don't remember the name of the book, but he's based in New York somewhere, and he's an expert on sulfur compounds. And he wrote a whole book about uh, the amazing uh, diversity of chemicals in, uh, in onions, and sulfur compounds in particular. I'm not a chemist. I know, don't know much about it, but there certainly is a, a large variation in, in taste. Some onions hardly taste at all. Others are really pungent. The really pungent ones are probably the only ones which uh, have gone away with uh, not being eaten by people in the past. On your travels, seeking out plants, have you come across any good Allium adventures? Some good Allium adventures. Well, um, there's a little uh, story about, um, I came across this uh, actually a species which has grown to a certain extent as a, an ornamental. It's uh, Allium velishii from the Himalaya. I call it the Sherpa onion. We know the Sherpas from uh, climbing Everest, but of course they had their home lives as well, and they had their home gardens. And this was a wild species which grew in the uh, in the high altitudes in, for example, in Nepal. And uh, this was a, one of many plants which were domesticated in a small scale around the world. 
and they moved this wild onion into their into their gardens. They probably selected the better looking plants and uh, they started growing it both for their own consumption, but also for the markets. It became an important cash crop for the uh, Sherpa people. It's also a plant that's found in, well, it's throughout the Himalayan region. And it was uh, used in Nepal in particular to flavor a kind of a lentil soup, lentil uh, broth. So it would be basically lentils, which is, which is kind of like uh, a staple for the Nepalese. So cooked lentils with, uh, with this local onion. And it was uh, both fermented and it was also dried and sent down to the markets in the low in the lowlands in for example in Kathmandu probably about 2015 i was contacted by a botanist at the at the university here it turned out there was a, a nepalese botanist who was studying in trondheim nearby and uh, he wondered if he and he could bring his wife to see my garden because he'd heard rumors that i had plants from all over the world and that was that was fun because they walked around the garden and they recognized quite a few of the plants I had. And then they found, they saw, I told them about this plant, which comes from Nepal. And amazingly, they had never seen it because they'd never been to the high altitudes where it, where it grows, but they'd eaten it all their life in dried form, bought from the markets in, in Kathmandu. So they were over the moon to see this plant, which they called uh, Yimu, which was their local name for it. And uh, they were so enthralled by the garden that uh, they asked if they could come back a week later and make a Nepalese feast for me based on the Nepalese plants that they recognized, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> it sounds like it. So how would people be able to find more about you and how would they be able to find your book? Uh, the book in North America is sold by Chelsea Green, permanent publications in the UK. I do sell uh, from home, but it uh, can get quite expensive with postage outside of Norway. But I have sent it to the US a couple of times. And um, if you're really interested in alliums, I have a, a Facebook album with over 900 pictures of alliums. Mm. And I also have a, an album of 400 different pictures from the garden, the botanical gardens, the Chicago garden that I mentioned earlier. Uh, they're both on, on Facebook. Um, you can find some of the pictures also on, on my blog. I'll put, uh, I'll put all the links that you are talking about into the show notes. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. And actually, today we're publishing a video that we made two years ago from the Chicago Garden in, in Trondheim, where I go around at the end of August, I think it is, and we talk about the onions that we see. So, so I think about about 20 minute video, which is being put on YouTube today for the members of our CTOs, but it will be also available for anybody who's interested. So I can give you the link to that one too. Sounds exciting. So you can get a better impression of what the garden looks like. Very exciting. Well, thank you very much for joining me. It was wonderful talking to you. Yeah, welcome. Yeah. Lovely to talk to you again, Carmen. Thanks for listening. As mentioned, all the links are in the show notes. I can't recommend Stephen's book, Around the World in 80 Plants, enough. It's a resource of useful, hardy perennial plants. Some familiar, many unusual, but all fascinating, and accompanied by stories, histories, cultural context, and whimsical anecdotes. 
It's a fantastic read and reference. If you're enjoying the content, please support the podcast by sharing it with your plant-loving friends. And leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps spread the word to fellow botanical enthusiasts and grow connections. Many thanks, and happy springtime to you.